0: Welcome to another episode of Code for Thought. Some of you may remember my interview with Teresa Gomez-Diaz on open science from last year, 2022. Teresa explained the different pillars that put together are the basis of open science, for instance, open software and open data. But even though most of us are software engineers in research, I believe all of us realise how important publishing is, still is, in the world of science and research. And so, in this episode, I want to focus on Open Access, which is another pillar of Open Science, and in particular the Budapest Open Access Initiative. I had the great pleasure and privilege to meet with Jean-Claude Gueron from the University of Montreal in Canada in 2022. Jean-Claude is one of the authors of the Budapest Open Access Declaration from the year 2002, and an expert in the history of scientific publication and communication. He may be retired, but as he says, retirement is nothing but a long sabbatical year. In my discussion with Jean-Claude, we explore the background and history that led to the Open Access Declaration, but also touch on the impact it has had on the world of science communication and what we hope the future will hold. The episode notes contain a number of links you might want to follow up on. And here now, my conversation with Jean-Claude. Hello, Jean-Claude. Thank you very much for attending today's show. It's an honor and a privilege to meet you because you're one of the authors of the Budapest Open Access Initiative. But before we talk about this, could you briefly introduce yourself?
1: Thank you for the privilege on my part of being on this podcast. I'm very, very happy to be able to respond to you. Uh, I'm a retired professor from the University of Montreal, a historian of science by training. I had a, a sort of digression in my uh, in my career which led me into comparative literature but also led me into a scholarly communication publishing and uh, the whole internet and digital context, which actually directed most of my research and most of my activities in the last twenty five years of my career. And now that I'm retired, I can really do my career freely, which is very, very nice. You know that retirement is nothing more than a long sabbatical year. I quite, <laughs> enjoy, this. I quite enjoy this situation, I must say, very, very mm-hmm. frankly. So that's what I'm doing. I'm continuing to do the work, which essentially I started in the 90s with electronic publishing of a journal uh, mm-hmm. way back then in 91 and uh, then the discovery of the open access movement in the mid-90s, and then, of course, getting drafted to join the Budapest meeting, which led to the formal launch in effect of that particular uh, movement. And I've been active in that ever since, while trying to reflect and think a little bit about what it all means, because it actually goes way beyond what the ostensible open access question really is. We started from that question. It looks simple and correct, but it turns out to be a much more complex and much more interesting question, actually. We're living through a very major transition in our (laughs) civilization by moving away from analog storage and writing, producing of, of documents to an entirely different context. And the new context we all know is uh, networked digitization it's uh, computers all over the world interacting in a kind of difficult to fathom entity so I say it's difficult to fathom because in a sense it is an extension of humanity but at the same time it's feeding back into humanity in very complex mm-hmm. ways it's changing us as well and some of the Socioeconomic, political, and philosophical problems of our age are tied to that deep transition. We won't deal with that today. <laughs> it would take us too far. <laughs> Indeed. Through. But I think it's important to set the context to show that this problem of scientific communication and publishing is only a small segment of a much larger project. The problem which we have to deal with and we are dealing with and which is, of course, affecting our lives that's why I'm very, very pleased to respond
0: to your invitation today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Which throws us right into the middle of it, because the Budapest Open Access Initiative has a declaration. It touches on a number of points, and it's actually quite, how how to describe it, it's quite an ambitious and a very dramatic actually declaration in a way because I'm reading out the first line and just to give you a little bit of a flavor of it for the people who might not have might not be familiar with it an old tradition and a new technology have converged to make possible an unprecedented public good and I think that is quite an opening for a declaration on open access and I think with you being actually in the room when this document was written I'm keen to find out how all of that came about. I mean, you touched on that a little bit, but maybe you can go into the specific, how you got actually to participate in the Budapest Open Access Initiative and in the writing of the document, of course.
1: Well, how I got drafted into it is still a bit of a mystery to me. I think two people were involved independently, Fred Friend, who also was there, and Stephen Harnad, who also was there. So both people, I think, had something to say about the uh, this particular uh, fact that I was part of the thing. That's not the important element, by the way. Really, a lot of interesting people were there. What I think is important in the Budapest Declaration is that it both reflects accurately the ambitions of the time, uh, 2001, And also, the limitations of the vision of the time, and if I may, i'd like to go on the, both of these uh, questions separately, because they are uh, important the The ambition was you know we have here a uh, a new technology, and we are going to really uh, use it to do what presently print doesn't allow us to do. We're going to really in effect use that computer network technology to open up the possibility of scientists and scholars to communicate and exchange and, and and move forward much, much more efficiently and much more quickly. And it's going to really Create a sort of even playing field for the whole planet to do and participate in the creation of knowledge worldwide that was the utopian dream that was the uh, the horizon that we were all sharing with great enthusiasm and great naivety actually we had great yeah.
0: and if I may interject in there and because it was actually as he quite rightly say, a sign of the times because I remember the time the nineteen nineties when the internet uh, well, the web, uh, World Wide Web became very popular, that it would democratize everything and it would drive forward freedom and right. bring people together. And here we are in 2022, where um, actually a lot of that is pointing in the opposite direction. So I think this puts it very nicely in that context.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I wrote a little book on the internet in 1996 where I was doing exactly that. I was saying we, we are living a world of uh, broadcast and, uh, you know, unilateral diffusion of stuff like television and radio to have a system in which people can speak to each other and build, and build knowledge together. And I thought this was really going to be very liberating. We were in that very much in that uh, frame of mm. mind in 2001. And the the point was that we also completely neglected, you might say, the powers that be. That is to say, the people who had, in the meanwhile, set themselves up in the middle of the publishing and communication system of science and scholarship were not ready to relinquish their privileged position for the sake of liberating knowledge and liberating, (laughs) liberating uh, (laughs) the whole of humanity for a better, uh, you know, a better morning. We're all uh, a bunch of happy dreamers, actually, which was a very nice state of mind to be in at the same time, because it gave us a lot of energy and a lot of confidence. Mm. And we pushed forward, again, very naively, but very strongly for a number of things. The point is that we managed to do it together. I mean, the Right now, open access has become a, a centerpiece of the uh, of the cent- of the publishing and communication system of uh, of scholarship and science, albeit couched and put in sh- in forms which are not always terribly positive. But open access, <laughs> and open access, that you see, you can read freely articles that are published by whatever, whoever, uh, has become if not the majority of the papers available, certainly a very significant minority of these papers, and you can do a hell of a lot of reading straight from home uh, on a computer. We were starting from that situation. The discussion at Budapest was amusing because it also immediately revealed um, the fact that we didn't know where we wanted to go. We wanted open access, (laughs) but by what means? And there were two two schools that were developing. There was the minority school, but very strongly argued stru- school of let's self-archive what we produce, and then people will uh, do with what they want mm-hmm. with that. And in parallel, we can continue to publish in journals. But the the major thing will be done through self archiving. This was, again, the utopian vision with a couple of well-tweaked uh, protocols. Everything will be harvested and available and retrievable and identifiable mm-hmm. and reusable and, and whatever. I mean, we were really glib. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the line that was largely defended uh, in particular by Stephen, Stephen Hartnett, and who pushed the, the, this, this argument very, very, very strongly. On the other hand, there were a number of people, including myself, who kept on saying, hey, wait a minute, there's a little bit more to this than just self-archiving. There's also the symbolic value of all this publishing. And I'm not Mm -hmm. sure what we're beginning to envision is going to take care of that particular aspect completely. So you could see the beginning of a discussion, which in effect was resting on the fact that some more complex process had to be envisioned to really understand what scientific publishing and communication really needed. And the, the notion of having something like a journal became an important element. Now, some people were very, very strongly on the side of journals and creating open access journals. I'm thinking about Michael Eisen, for example, and who, uh, of course, was closely associated with the Public Library of Science project which uh, was mm. getting some very significant money from the Intel-based foundation. So you had that, and there were other people, and there was, because of my training in history of science and science policy, people were trying to look at beyond journals, but more at journals as journal function, if you want. And they were trying mm. to say, well, what can we do in a in, in a digital world to do the equivalent of what journals presently is doing in the complex system that we call scientific publishing and scientific communication. So mm-hmm. then there's a kind of tension that developed between uh, particularly Stephen and myself, although we've remained very good friends, but in a sense, uh, we, we took different paths. Stephen thought that, you know, it's very simple. You just self-archive, you do the stuff to really make it uh, work. You do the few, the few keyboard strokes that you need to self-archive. That's all you have to do. You do mm-hmm. it, and if you are a responsible researcher, you have to do it. It's a moral duty. Stephen is very much of the categorical imperative school. You know, if you, uh, if you, mm-hmm. if you have a well understood concept in your mind, then you have to obey it. The problem is that many scientists and researchers and scholars are not content, and they don't Mm -hmm. believe in the categorical imperative. So he thought, you do that, you do that. Meanwhile, you publish normally in journals, as if journals are not going to pay attention to the fact that you're putting stuff in repositories, which, of course, was not the case. And in the end, the whole house of cards will crumble, and everything will go on the side of the repositories. The rest of, of the group was more carefully trying to move forward and there, I would say the open access movement somehow got kidnapped. <laughs> <In> some, <we laughs> kidnapped? By whom and by what? By the librarians. The librarians suddenly they seized themselves of open access and they saw in open access the ultimate tool to keep the publishers under control. If we do a lot of pu- open access, they won't be able to charge mm. us as much with their journals. That was more or less mm. the simplistic argument. And this had uh, two consequences. On the one hand, the librarians gave a lot of support to the open access movement, which was very Mm -hmm. important for the development of the open access movement, including developing a lot of repositories and putting resources, Mm -hmm. developing repositories. But at the same time, They were putting the whole open access uh, question in a framework in a context which really was not at all that of open access. It was in the frame in a context of how do we as librarians negotiate more efficiently with publishers in order to get better prices. That led to a a very complex field of discussions in which many questions got completely mixed up, in which I would say Mm. favored and allowed the publishers to gain time to think about open access and finally suddenly say to themselves, hey, if we're smart, this open access thing may not be an enemy. It may be actually a very useful thing to increase our our revenues. And that's when new recipes of open access began to be pushed mainly by publishers to push the open access movement or at the same time deflecting it into an area which was far from being very positive. What happened at that point is that the model of Biomed Central, which had already been tested even before Budapest, became a sort of business model for the open access movement from the publisher's perspective. And then Mm -hmm. when Valdirov moved to Springer around 2005, he developed another really, really important element of the business plan, which was the notion of hybrid journal the notion of the hybrid journal, which is a journal that publishes half as a subscription journal, half as open access mm-hmm. as a way to transition gracefully and harmoniously from paywall the journal to open access journals, had been initiated by people like David Prosser back in 2003 as a strategy right. to do the transfer. What publishers realized is that a hybrid journal was a wonderful tool to modulate your income sources in order to <laughs> maximize your profit. You keep on playing with the two elements and uh, you drag some people with articles that they pay for and you, you drag the librarians to pay for the journal and you end up doing what the librarians rightly call the double dipping movement. So at that point, you started seeing around 2005, 6, 7, 8 an evolution of the open access movement into really a a battle and a fight and a tension and a contest between librarians who wanted to have as cheap journals as possible and publishers who wanted to have as much profit as possible. Meanwhile, the researchers were left on the wayside. And for a while, the managerial part of uh, research was also left outside. The funding agencies were not involved in that. The leaders of libraries, of uh, laboratories, or the uh, leaders of universities or research centers were not involved either. You had this kind of lopsided discussion between librarians and publishers trying to shape mm. what open access should be optimally like.
0: There is quite a lot in there, what you just said, with regards to the battle between the different Actually, the battle between the different philosophies or the bit different mindsets, what open access actually should be and how it actually panned out. Because nowadays, it can be quite confusing what open access means. There's the gold standard, there's the green standard, and etc. Yeah. And I believe that publishers found a nice way of making money by actually not charging people who access the articles, but people who write them. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, means that universities have to pay for them, just as they had to pay for subscriptions, they now have to pay for publishing.
1: When um, Velterop went to Springer, I still remember Dirk Hack was the CEO at the time of uh, Springer. And I remember Mm. in um, Frankfurt, I was there at a banquet where um, we were discussing these issues around the table, he suddenly said, when uh, we thought about having article processing charges for the journals, I wasn't quite sure who would be paying for that. But then suddenly I realized that funding agencies and universities might add um, those sums of money to those that traditionally had been allocated to the buying of uh, subscriptions mm-hmm. of journals, he said laughingly, "Suddenly, I, re- I realized we had invented a new revenue stream, and I was all for it." <laughs> not surprising. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, what the publishers realized that open access was not a threat; it was an opportunity. It was mm-hmm. a way to invent new sources of, uh, of revenues from funding agencies who began to feel that they had to get involved and mm. in help researchers getting published, and universities who felt that they had to do that because of rankings and classifications on the world scale, which relied on the number of publications, Hmm. you know, among other things, and which therefore meant that paying for these articles was strategically important for for the good reputation of the institution. So at that point, you had a system that began to really tighten up, which really brought fruition, and complete coherence, a transition which had started much earlier, which is the commercialization of scholarly publishing after the Second World War, but then became there, you know, tied up with the issues of what you call this of a science citation index and impact factor and all that. You put all this together into a system in which the value economic, value of a journal is tied to a metric which is supposed to also give an indication about the intellectual value of this of this thing, you put mm. that into a ranking system on a world scale, you put everybody in competition with everybody else, and you just say, if you want to look good in there, you have no choice but to publish, 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 publish.
0: Mm. That is uh, exactly what I want to talk about in a little bit more detail. There are two elements that I would like to discuss. First, a little bit about the history of publishing, and then secondly... That when we say publishing, there's a lot more involved, as you alluded to, than just putting together a paper and communicating with other uh, scientists in order to share knowledge. But let's talk about history because scientific publishing is, of course, older than since the Second World War, but it has perhaps not always been that huge a kind of business. No. Could you give us a little bit of a through? Because I think that's quite interesting. So how did this turn into this kind of big business model that we right. see today?
1: Yeah, let me not go back to 1665 and the creation <laughs> of the, <laughs> <No>. the, <laughs> transactions, the trans- <laughs> philosophical transactions of the Royal Society. That is quite often taken as the formal beginning of publishing of journals. Up to, particularly, let's say, from 1800 to at say nineteen forty five the hmm. dominant force in scientific and scholarly publishing were learned societies and scientific societies. Essentially, what was happening is that people were trying to emulate what the national academies had started doing earlier, and they were trying to create circles in which they could project their voice beyond the circle itself of the of the society. So the idea is that a number of um, natural scientists and natural philosophers or scientists would band together, put a bit of money mm-hmm. through news together, bring a journal out together, and would, mm-hmm. uh, would choose the best work coming from their circle in that journal. So they were publishing themselves, essentially, and diffusing mm-hmm. that to the rest of the world. And the idea was that with that, we can exchange our journal with similar societies, which create also similar journals, so that with one journal and a few hundred copies, we could get several dozen, if not hundreds of uh, titles of journals from various societies all around the world. And this is a model Mm -hmm. that gradually developed with the British Association for the Advancement of Science and similar associations throughout Europe all through the 19th century in the early part of the 20th century. In parallel, Mm -hmm. the commercial publishers were looking at possibilities of doing scientific publishing, but they quickly realized that publishing very esoteric stuff, which can interest only a few hundred people at best, is not a very good business model to to get any place. They realized, on the other hand, that the writing of some very good books and best-selling books could be very profitable they thought that journals could be sometimes useful to maintain a link with a pool of potential authors and then you publish the books that went out and became best-sellers in the in the period i suspect that if one looked very closely at the publishing history of someone like darwin you would find a relationship between publishers and Darwin and the journals and eventually the monographs of Darwin's uh, exactly following that sort of pattern so as to bring about right. essentially a best-selling, very important monograph. The secondary market that the commercial publishers developed before the Second World War was the, yeah. you might say, the indexing market or the abstracting market. As the number of journals right. began to grow, rather exponentially, and it became ever more difficult to follow what was going on, some commercial people began to develop the possibility of creating bibliographies of these journals, and also creating in abstracting services for these journals. And they started selling those. And that was a secondary market that began to develop fairly actively, particularly in Germany. And you Mm -hmm. might say up to the Second World War, The learned societies dominate the situation all over the place. And you have commercial publishers doing a few journals, but also mainly secondary market indexing, abstracting kind of stuff, as well as dictionaries and compendia and, you know, these kinds of uh, publications, things that synthesize the knowledge in a way that makes it more available to a wider public. The Second World War completely shifted that. Because after, first of all, the the role of the of science in the Second World War was immense, absolutely immense, mm. on both sides of the of the war. And after the war, suddenly science became a strategic element, and especially with the right. the, the rise of the of the Cold War, the countries realized, most especially the U.S. and the Soviet Union, realized that they have to maintain a dominant position in scientific research if they have a chance of resisting the adversary. The amount of support for research by governments really exploded. One must not forget that before the Second World War, the part of governments in supporting research financially was quite limited. That immediately meant that the number of publications, of course, grew phenomenally. And the result of that is that the learned societies just couldn't cut it. They just couldn't do it. Mm They didn't have the resources to to take in that many, many things. And it's at that point that the commercial publishers, some of them, began to understand that they had perhaps there the way to make some money. And the person that really invented that, I would say fundamentally, not alone, mm-hmm. but he was really a driver, was, of course, Robert Maxwell and the creation of Pergamon, Pergamon Press. You have the development after the Second World War of this commercial press, which is immediately followed by Elsevier becoming an important player and Springer becoming an important player. And a number of commercial outfits beginning to develop to essentially um, occupy a beachhead in this uh, domain of scientific publishing. Except they don't have yet everything to make the whole thing work. Because, yeah, there is a demand for more journals than what the societies can offer, but they can anticipate that at some point the societies are going to catch up. So there is you need more. And that's where actually something very important happened with the Science Citation Index of Garfield. When Garfield came along as a way to create a bibliographic tool to follow ideas across disciplines, Garfield also suddenly realized he had something that could be used to gauge how well a journal was doing in terms of it being noticed by other journals. And he suddenly realized that if he could somehow close the system, limit the number of journals, and say these are the important journals of the world, then suddenly the rankings of these journals through so their citations, as well as their belonging to this inner circle of journals, would suddenly make into one area come together the intellectual, quote unquote, value mm. of these journals with their commercial the impact group. factor. Is it that what you the mean?
0: The impact, impact factor?
1: factor? Exactly. So when the impact factor began to play into the whole thing, the commercial publishers began to realize that they had in mind, in hand, the means to make intellectual and economic value converge. And that's when the rankings of of the journals began, and that's when the, the competition between journals began in a very strict manner. That's when they decided that an impact factor had to be produced with three decimals. Because as Garfield said in one article, we need that to have an unambiguous ranking of journals. You know, <laughs> it's completely crazy. <laughs> when you think about it. So that's where you end up having as a system in the 90s. And in the 90s, of course, what happens at that moment is the creation of digital journals. That's the beginning of the digital mm-hmm. world. And this is where the modern publishers have been extremely good at on the one hand, <laughs> destroying the journal by putting them on platforms which actually foreground the article. Because when you read an mm. article on a platform like Science Direct, they don't direct yeah. you to another journal. They direct you to other articles of the collection of journals yes. and articles that uh, Elsevier owns. But the while the platform really doesn't care about journals, in terms of the relationship to the libraries that buy the journals what you do then is you rank the journals however absolutely irrelevant this is you rank them and you sell them to libraries by telling them these are the important journals and of course Mm. what is even more important is that it catches the researchers into this game because they want to publish where it's important to be published, Mm -hmm. not to be communicated or to be viewed or seen, but because they can put in their file something saying, I was published by nature. The whole system then starts catching on fire, so to speak, because then the The labs are being affected by that and their reputation. Then the universities or the research centers are being caught by this. And then ultimately you rank countries and you create world rankings of countries according to this crazy system. And you, of course, what you have there is a completely closed and well-organized system in which then open access had to find its place. And it did. It did beautifully because... You you just came in there and you had your APC's article processing charges, which corresponded to the well, to the impact factor of the journal. And at that point the whole system works coherently from an economic standpoint, even mm. though it's completely
0: irrational from a research standpoint. I guess that's not exactly what you envisaged when you came up with the open access initiative. What strikes me about the opening passage old tradition, which is, of course, the publishing and new technologies, the internet coming together. But in actual fact, when we look at publishing today, very often look at a PDF. So instead of it being printed into a journal, which then sits on a shelf somewhere in a library, you can download the PDF. Maybe you can also download the data. But it's kind of Yeah, we have this new technology, but it's kind of a similar way that we've dealt with in the past, except you don't have a physical copy anymore. You have the PDF. So have we actually really advanced the technology that much?
1: You know what Marshall McLuhan used to say about all these technologies? We look Mm. into a rearview mirror. The PDF is a perfect example, which has been defined, and described by somebody like Gregory Crane as a digital incunabular. That is to say, it's a comical imitation of print in a digital thing. The PDF format itself was actually derived from a protocol which had been invented to unify the relationship of computers and printers. It just says it can be printed any place. Now, the whole point of PDF is to be printed. PDF is a very bad format to work with. The only way you can use a PDF, and I do it myself, it's because it looks like an old article that has been printed and I can annotate it by hand, and my mind works well with this kind of tool. But this my children and the next couple of generations who have been probably much more attuned to really digital uh, documents are going to say PDF is complete nonsense. Indeed, the new technology that we were envisioning in 2001 was a rear-view mirror technology, something like F1000 Research, the... The commercial platform that was developed by VTech Tracks a few years ago uh, shows far more, far more what one can do with the digital world than uh, the PDF being produced in the old ways. Look at it this way I work in a lab with my team, I get some data, I write this up as an article. I sent it to a, a journal. It's being reviewed by peer reviewers. It's coming back to me with co- with uh, suggestions and corrections and criticisms. We we'll rework the article. We send it back. Maybe a second time it go- comes back. And finally, it's accepted. Meanwhile, about a year has passed by. Then the article is going to be produced. And then after six months, it's going to appear. And then once it's appeared, it's going to be noticed another six months or a year later. And then another lab is going to start reacting to it. And by the time something happens in response to the original work that we did in the lab, it's going to be three, four, five years. This is an extraordinarily bad way of doing it. And the PDF is not accelerating that at all. Right now, for example, publishers like Elsevier and Springer and the rest of them are Maintaining the PDF as the technical solution to digital publishing in a context in which doing so is not helping at all the real communication of minds, the real criticisms of minds by other minds, and the movement forward of knowledge for the whole of humanity. It's It's something entirely different.
0: What does it mean for the open access movement then in future? So if you look back over the past 20 years and you look ahead the next 20, so what is it that you actually would like to see? If you look at the the history of print, you realize it took
1: probably over a century and a half before print really got into its own and found its own pace. You had this long period of incunabula for about 50, 60 years in which people were floundering about. And then people slowly inventing new formulations for print, such as gazettes, journals, Mm -hmm. newspapers, and so on. I think we are in a similar situation in which we have to think about a context in which we're going to relate to documents, relate to each other, and having documents relating to documents in a different way. And we, Mm -hmm. we are not there yet. So what I would like to see, First of all, I would like to congratulate the open access movement for having gone through a long learning period of understanding yeah. what was happening to ourselves. It took 20 years to understand what we were doing. And I'm not sure all people in the open access movement have yet understood that. You know, some have, some have not. Now the next stage is to do one thing that's very simple, which is open access is a derivative of the digital revolution. We've got to fit within the digital revolution, not the reverse. The open access objective, or open science now, because I think the change of vocabulary is part of that transition, really know what we want to do. What do we want to do? Open access is about the best production of knowledge possible for human beings, Mm -hmm. their dispersed brains, and their difficulty to criticize each other. It's a contingent way of bootstrapping ourselves upward and upward, but it's a very complex and very difficult bootstrapping sort of effort. And we've got to really design open access and open science to maximize the bootstrapping element of knowledge production, and I mean for the whole of humanity. Right now we have a system in which a minority, elite group of countries is leading completely the whole thing, marginalizing large segments of knowledge production elsewhere in the world, using knowledge as a geopolitical and strategic element in international Mm -hmm. competition. We've got to really take knowledge seriously and say the whole of humanity has to be involved. That, I think, is really the, the future of open access. Relocate itself not as a kind of instrumental subset of what science is, but put itself at the center of a very, very important question, which is so important nowadays with all the fake news and all that kind of stuff. What can we do to produce the best possible knowledge as a distributed system of human beings trying to do their best? It's complex because for many scientists, the objectives are much more narrow. You know, I mean, they they want to lead a good lab. They want to have their prizes. They want to have their grants,
0: mm-hmm. Get to funding for the next project, and things that's like right, that.
1: Good careers and all that. Producing good knowledge is is not separable in their minds from being accepted by prestigious journals and so on. So they're got mm-hmm. in a whole system of reference and and evaluation, which keeps on nourishing this whole system all the objectives are being sort of mixed up there in one, one simple object, which has only one function nowadays, the journal. It's a commercial function. We don't need journals.
0: And I think it's quite interesting that you say it's the production of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge rather than actually the production and sharing of publications and articles, because that may not be the same thing.
1: That's right. You see, researchers don't need publishers. I'm going to put it very bluntly. They need publishing functions. They need communication Mm. functions. But they also need the publishing functions because that's when, at some point, the community sort of comes to some sort of temporary relative consensus that this is worth considering Mm. for the future. And that's very important for science, this sort of intermediate step in which knowledge is not truth or, or absolute reality. It's just a relative and temporary stabilization of a consensus, but it's mm-hmm. very, very important for science to keep on moving. It's these kinds of intermediate steps which allow little by little to create grand panoramas of knowledge which stand for a good while like Newtonian theories or Einsteinian mm-hmm. theories. But it's always temporary. Unlike religious belief, which is always in its claims and its objectives to be absolute. And uh, there is no, mm-hmm. no doubt all. Science is always uncertain, always cre- can always be criticized, is always limited. And that's its nobility, I would say. It's the beauty of science, the lucid knowledge of uncertainty. We have to accept that. It's a, our fundamental limitation. But it's a wonderful one, because it's one that allows us to move, to go elsewhere, to try something else. But a lot of people find that very unsettling. I think what what open access has to do is, in a sense, project to the whole of humanity. This is the limitation and yet, at the same time, the beauty of what knowledge production and creation is all about.
0: I think there are so many facets to open access knowledge sharing. But unfortunately, we, we have come to the end of this recording now. But I think... It's a very nice ending to say that it's the hope of humanities and I think it's a nice example of what it can be, what we can accomplish together. Thank you so much, Jean-Claude. That was a, a fascinating interview and uh, I think a fascinating insight. I wish you all the best for your endeavours.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate
0: it. Oh, time's up. See you next time. But before I forget, this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons license. See ya!